Well, as you can tell, uh, we're starting a new series this morning for our season of Lent together. That's this 40 days leading up to our Easter celebration that's really set aside for a time of intentional spiritual preparation. Throughout the tradition of church life, that can be anything from self-reflection to confession to repentance, maybe intentional penitence, even an opportunity for those who have felt far off from God or or from the church community, kind of disconnected. It's an opportunity to return, an opportunity to sort of feel that that revival again uh, as we celebrate the Easter resurrection in Jesus Christ, that restoration. Maybe some of you have taken on different practices for this Lenten season, whether it's a Uh, getting rid of something and a fast of some kind or taking on a new spiritual discipline to prepare your spirit. Some folks have done prayer and then scripture reading, exercising gratitude. No matter what you are doing, I hope that your intention is to make space to connect with God in this season leading up to Easter. And if you're looking for something uh, that you could be doing with your church family every Thursday, Throughout Lent, up until Monday, Thursday, we meet in the lower level below Middletown Sanctuary for a time of prayer. It's about 45 minutes long. There, It looks different each week, depending on who comes. We had a lot of uh, kids with us this last Thursday, so we did lots of Visio Divina, sort of visual prayer, uh, and lots of coloring, <laughs> which I appreciated. It was for all ages, the coloring. <laughs> Uh, We'll do something again like that, but you're welcome. Uh, Thursday at 7 p.m., an intentional time of prayer specifically for our church community in the future as we discern next steps. Uh, We really, we cannot underestimate the power of our prayer together during this season, and so I invite you, if you haven't already, to join us Thursdays at 7 p.m. If you're with us on Wednesday, at Ash Wednesday, I invited you to consider that Lent is also a time that we sort of reflect on our own humanity our own mortality, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We recognize that we are dust, that we came from dust, and one day to the dust we will return, that we will all die one day. And it's that realization that that says, okay, yes, we need the grace of God in our lives. But part of recognizing our mortality is also acknowledging our own limitedness, that we are limited creatures. There's the creator and then the created. And we are on this side of that divide. First Corinthians 13 says it this way. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. If you remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to a very divided church, and they're arguing in this section over who has the best gifts, the best spiritual gifts that one could get and receive from the Spirit teaching and prophecy, and and he's like, you bunch of clanging symbols if you don't have love. That was my paraphrase. The words are kind of in there, though. You are nothing without love. And he talks about how love bears all things, and love is patient and kind, and here, love never ends. And that's the context for which he's saying, 
Those prophecies, they will pass away. The tongues, they will cease. Like there will be a day when that ends. But when the perfect comes, this partial will pass away. He's saying when we grow up in Christ, kind of talking about being from a child and now as a man, he's talking about growing up in Christ, growing up into the body of Christ, of that sanctification process of growing in grace. One day we will be glorified with Christ and then we will know fully. It's like now in this reality we are seeing through a mirror dimly. We are seeing through a glass dimly. We don't understand everything there is to know and understand about life and the world and God and how things work. But one day we will. For now, we are limited. We, we sort of see in part. And, and so in this reality, we have some pretty big questions. Some pretty big questions about life and God and faith and, and Scripture. And it's sort of hard to get our arms wrapped around all of these questions. So we're doing something a little bit different this Lent. And as you know, several weeks ago, I asked you to submit your big, scary questions about life and faith and God. And I've compiled sort of a, a list of exploring some of these topics together. Anything you've ever wondered about, uh, sort of that ask me anything. And, and hear me, I'm not standing up here before you promising answers. As if I, sometime, I have somehow crossed that divide and now I know fully. <laughs> no, I stand up here and the humility of one who goes to scripture and who studies and who listens and who reads lots of different things and hopefully trying to, to be a spiritual guide for us during this time of Lent, that can be a time of sort of wrestling in the mystery of God. Trying to wrestle with some of these big questions. I love this quote by Jewish scholar Abraham Heschel, who says this, we are closer to God when we are asking questions than when we think we have the answers. My prayer is that during the season of Lent, as we question, as we doubt, as we wrestle, as we leave here more confused than when we got here, after you've heard a teaching, that somehow in that mystery, we will find ourselves in the presence of God turning to God in our questions rather than just pff, turning away altogether. And in that sense, it's a return to God during the season of Lent, even as we see through the glass dimly. So last Friday night, Matt and I drove down to Bowling Green for an event that was put on by Warren County Public Library. They were hosting a conversation with an author, Kate Bowler, on her book tour for her latest book release. And I've mentioned this name to you before. You might recognize it at this point. She was a professor at my, of mine at Duke Divinity School. Uh, and since then, she's been a voice that I've continued to follow and read and listen to as she's released multiple books in the last eight years and started a podcast all about finding beauty in life when all things fall apart. Because that happened for her. At 35, she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. She had this budding career in academia, a toddler at home, and then this diagnosis out of nowhere at 35. She describes receiving this diagnosis as like a bomb going off. 
all of the plans and assumptions and that she had built, sort of this future that she had in mind in her head, it was undone. So she first wrote about the diagnosis in an op-ed in the New York Times several years ago. And she shares it in her book, Everything Happens, which is a book that I've recommended a lot uh, in, the, in the past several years. She shares in her book, Everything Happens, about those who sort of felt the need to respond to this op-ed in the New York Times with an explanation of why she was experiencing this stage four colon cancer, of this need to sort of explain it away, of there must be a reason. She said she had people that wrote to her and said, well, at least, she calls them the qualifiers, well, at least you have a good doctor. At least you have a really good care team. I mean, you're at Duke. I mean, you can't, you know, you, you can't complain about that. Uh, at least you're not going into debt for your treatment. At least you have a good community of support around you. As if this should somehow make her uh, grateful for all that she has in this moment of deep suffering. She had, of course, had the people that, that reached out to her and said, well, if you just tried this, fill in, the blank, fill in the blank, whether it was a new diet or a new way to pray or a new essential oil, she said. Lots of people came to her with some oils, right? If you just try these things, you just need to, you need to work harder. It's, it's, you can fix this. You can fix this. You have that power. And then, of course, there were those that said, well, everything happens for a reason. She recounts, uh, and she actually shared about this again last Friday night, her husband who opened the door to a neighbor who was bringing a casserole as she was going through treatments. And in that moment of discomfort, I feel like we say this when we don't know what to say, when it's really awkward, and we're like, uh. And so we say, everything happens for a reason. And his response to this neighbor with a casserole dish in his hand was, really? What is the reason? And she kind of stepped back and he said, I'd love to know the reason why my wife is dying at 35 with a toddler at home. There was one person who flat out just wrote her and said, she calls him Gary from Indiana. I'm not sure if that's where he's from, but in her book, it's Gary from Indiana. Flat out writes her and says, God must be just to let you die. There was a reason for her pain and suffering, and it was because she deserved it somehow. Yeah, people are awesome, aren't they? That's not the word I would use, but I'm standing in the pulpit. <laughs> On Friday night at this conversation, Dr. Bowler said, there is a particular kind of cruelty that comes from the religiously certain, from the Garys. There's a particular kind of cruelty that comes from the religiously certain. In their prepositions and their presuppositions and their declarations of what they are really doing is working out their own big scary questions about God and faith on those who are suffering. That they need this sense of control and reason and must be, uh, must be true for all things to hold together. And, and by saying such things, like everything happens for a reason, or God must be just to let you die, they're actually working out their own deepest insecurities and fears and doubts about God. But in this pile-on way on those who are suffering. But I think what all of these responses really reveal to us is our very human sort of nature, our human desire to try and understand why is this happening? 
Like, this is too awful. The world cannot be this chaotic and random. We need a reason. We need a sense of of control in our lives. Make it make sense. Because if this world is really this chaotic and random, I mean, that's a scary place to be. So it's answering that simple question of why, that at some point in our lives, all of us want to know, why is this happening to me? As much as I can even sort of poke fun at or say some of these things that are really hurtful or harmful or say we shouldn't be saying these things, even I, at times in my life, have wondered, why is this happening to me? So out of all the questions that you all submitted to me, no easy ones, let me just say, (laughs) most of them related to, in some fashion, something, I mean, the vast majority of them were about the sovereignty of God. They were about, what is God's will? How can we know it? How can we understand it? How can we follow it? Is God really in control? What's the point of prayer if God already knows what's going to happen? That was one that was asked. Does does prayer change anything then? And so for the next couple of weeks, they're all going to sort of be related, because this is a really big topic. Um, And so we'll kind of, you know, make it a a three-parter or so. They're going to all be related just a bit. But the first question this week is simply, why? Why do bad things happen to good people? Because the question that connects all of this about, is God really in control? Is God sovereign? What is the will of God? Underneath all of that is this sort of thread of us asking, why? Why is this happening to me? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow for suffering? Why does God allow kids to die from cancer? Why does God allow people to die from famine and starvation? Why does God allow another mass shooting, these random acts of violence? Why do some people live long and healthy, happy lives while others die young or tragically or in these freak accidents? Why does God allow there to be war, violence, and oppression, and genocide? Sometimes, friends, in the name of God. There's a big question I've been asking since October. It's why we look at what's going on in the Holy Land right now, of the place where Jesus walked. Horrible, awful things of Over 1,200 people murdered and hundreds taken hostage. And now the death count I saw this morning was nearly 12,000 kids dead in Gaza. Safe zones that they thought were safe, then bombed. Why? Where is God in these terrible moments of violence and abuse? Violence and abuse. You know, people have been wrestling with this question for a really long time. It's so ancient, in fact, that we have a big fancy word for it. You might already know it. It's called theodicy. There you go. That's your $5 seminary, you know, uh, lesson this morning, theodicy. The problem of evil, it's this understanding that if God is omniscient and omnipotent and omnibenevolent, there's a big word you don't say every day, right? If God is all-knowing, if God is all-powerful, if God is all-loving, if God created 
the earth and creation and called it good, then why does evil exist? Why is there suffering? Question of theodicy that Christians throughout all time have been wrestling with. And so we're in good company. And the good news is that there are other people much smarter than me who have come up with theories about how we can wrestle with this question. And thanks to uh, a colleague, Pastor Matt Myofsky, he kind of has summed up three different theories of how we might attempt to answer this question. But I say they are theories because they all have holes. You'll see that as we, as we move through them. How we can understand evil in our world, they are all incomplete, each of these theories. They're not perfect, but it's an attempt for humans to try and get their arms around this one just a little bit. The first, the way, the, the way that we sort of deal with the problem of evil is by saying that evil is the byproduct of human free will. Human free will. That God created us with the capacity to choose, to have choice, so we are then capable of choosing really good things, but on the flip side of that, we also have to be capable of choosing bad things. And if you want to have free will, you have to make for the possibility that people will choose bad things. And we can't control that as much as we would like to. It's, it can explain a lot of the suffering that we see in the world. Uh, Galatians 5 sort of touched on this. Uh, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But the warning, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You were called to freedom, but do not use your freedom for selfish gain. But humble yourselves. Use your freedom to serve one another. There's the capacity here to choose wrong or choose bad or choose to be motivated by your own sense of selfishness or greed or power. So free will comes from God, but evil comes from the choices that humans make. Simply put, it's that our actions have consequences. And we can see that. Individual choices that, that we make can lead to our own bodily injury or illness or harm of ourselves, but also harming of others. So it's not just individual choices, but collective choices can have a collective impact as well. These choices that are motivated by the power or greed or, or selfishness, we have seen throughout history how they have led to wars and violence and oppression. Humans desiring that power and control of, uh, over other people. It's almost from here that we can sort of follow that line. Everything happens for a reason. And you can sort of trace it back to, and here are some of the really bad choices that people made that led to this reason. It does explain some level of evil and suffering in our world, but not all of it. It can't explain everything. There are limits to this free will, like those freak accidents that happen, or childhood cancer. Uh, there seems to be no link to, to anything we are responsible for in some of those circumstances. It can't explain all of the evil in the world. The second sort of theory is that evil is a consequence or punishment for sin. God must be just to let you die. So then I would want to say to him, well, all have fallen short of the glory of God. So join me. <laughs> you know, like, join me, sir. 
But evil is a consequence or a punishment of sin, a just punishment for the sin of the world that's linked all the way back to Adam and Eve, to original sin. And from there, it's sort of just grown and spread, that we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The punishment for sin is death. And we all can sort of operate along this, even if you're like, I don't believe that. Rachel, get out of here. You guys are ready to just like, what? But we can all sort of operate uh, according to this, uh, you know, maybe not us, but culturally, we can sort of see threads of this, of this understanding of karma in our culture. You get what you give. What goes around comes around. Uh, Bad things happen to those who deserve it. It's what they're responsible for. Um, Everyone has sinned, so they will all be recipient of some sort of suffering in their lives. We, We can kind of understand this. All have fallen short. But there's a risk of taking this to the extreme. A big risk. And just pointing and naming huge events that have happened and saying that's the punishment of God. Huge risk. You might remember that after the events of September 11th, there were people who said that that was a punishment on New York City and sort of city lifestyle and debauchery there. That's awful. Similar people tried to come up with reasons for the pandemic, that it must be God's judgment, and it was worse in other areas than some, and there, you know, it, it must just be God's judgment on those people or those places. I'll never forget the friends of ours who lost their child when she was about 25 weeks pregnant. And it was somebody who told them, ah, it was because you weren't married. Awful. Horrendous. And I said to them, no, no human has the right or the place to say what is God's judgment on another person or place. Risk taking that to the extreme. We all know that we have chosen things that are wrong and that leads to suffering. But it's dangerous to assume that certain things are punishments from God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. God didn't send Jesus to punish and condemn us, but to save us. That God is not dishing out these sufferings as, as some sort of punishment for you, but God desires to, to save us, to love us. God is for us. Yes, there are natural, con- natural consequences to some of our actions kind of related to that first theory, but this theory cannot explain all of the evil in the world, and honestly, it risks making God a monster, if I'm being honest. And that's not the God that we know. And then the last one is simply, God must not be in control. (laughs) This is more of a philosophical response as opposed to a biblical one. But you might understand how one that studies a lot of these things and wrestles with some of these questions, at some point, like a low moment in their day, you're just like, that's it. (laughs) I give up. God must not be in control. If God is loving and, and God is good and there's evil in the world, maybe it's because God actually can't control this stuff. One theory that people have come up with. 
this understanding that God sort of created things, but after that sort of steps back, takes sort of a hands-off approach. That's more of a, what one uh, professor has called the, the watchmaker God, of like, okay, they built it all, and it clicks together, and then you just step back and, and kind of watch. Uh, if, that was, if the one before is sort of like the puppet master God, where everything happens, right, the, there are consequences, and God controls it all, the good and the bad, even the suffering, this is more of the watchmaker God of stepping back, uh, and, and taking a, a different approach, not orchestrating every detail in our lives. So God actually can't stop evil from happening. That God is imagined to be the one who's present with us in suffering, to walk alongside us and love us, and to urge the world to change through love. Seen most clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ, who's willing to suffer and die on our behalf trying to transform the world that he loves so deeply by his love and sacrifice. But there's pretty major holes in this theory uh, as well. Um, the Bible really doesn't back this one up. Uh, in Ephesians 1, verses 10 through 11, verse 10 there, it says that, that there's been this plan set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth sort of destined by the plan of God who accomplishes everything according to this design. The Bible does imagine God in control of our world and sovereign. But it's that God is suffering with us and can also hold the heavens and the earth. So there's major holes in just this simple philosophical approach. There are more theories out there, but they all fall short. They're all incomplete. And here's the thing, suffering isn't theoretical, it's personal, it's real. There's something each of us are carrying this morning that has made us want to ask, why? Why me? Why now? Can God just not make this go away or change it or redeem it? There's no explanation, no answer that's going to make that situation that we have experienced or carry better. I think there's going to be a point at each week in the series where you're just like, oh my gosh, this is awful. <laughs> where's the hope? Where's the, where's the good news here, Rach? I think we're here at that moment right now, all of these theories about all the suffering in the world, all the examples that we can point to. And just because we can't fully understand this doesn't mean that our faith doesn't have a response doesn't mean that we can't find a word of comfort in Scripture. A few weeks ago, I read from Romans 8. I think it's just, that's okay. Uh, Romans 8, 26 through 28. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we, don't, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love him, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I talked about this several weeks ago. We talked about how we can engage with the Holy Spirit, experience the Holy Spirit, even when we don't know what to pray in these moments of just 
utter suffering or, or confusion or chaos. It's the spirit that can intercede for us with groans too deep for words. So the first word of comfort, the first promise that we see in Scripture is that God is present with us in our suffering. We know that. We hold on to that. God is present with us. You never suffer alone. And sometimes we experience the presence and power of God through the Holy Spirit, through the community of gathered believers who come alongside us, who surround us, who show up with casseroles and don't say everything happens for a reason. The ones who show up and just sit with us and hold our hand and say, I know this is hard. God is present with us in our suffering. The second is that God is working in the midst of our pain. Now, I want to be clear because here in Romans 8, especially 28, this is one of those verses where people say, see, if God is working everything together for the good for those who love him, everything happens for a reason, right? Even the bad things, if it leads us to God, that was the reason. And that, it's, that's a sort of a misuse of, of the spirit of this uh, scripture right here. Yes, God is working in the midst of our pain. God is working to weave, weave all of these pieces into something new. Yes, but that's not because God caused the pain and the suffering. It's because God can have redemption and victory in that suffering. I love what uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says about the Greek here. He says it should really, uh, it's, it's really more of not God works everything together for those who love him, but God works everything together with those who love him. I love that. Referring back to this previous point in Romans chapter 5. God, I did put that in there. That hope does not put us to shame because God love, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's this idea that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the one that pours out God's love to us. And so then when he refers back to this in Romans chapter 8, he's saying, see, it's the Spirit that's groaning with you. It's the Spirit that's been pouring out love on you. And so God, it's sort of this like wild dialogue between us and Christ and, and God with the Spirit kind of working all through in the mystery of the Trinity, God working with us to weave together something new and different and redemptive. If you have a Renault lesson or a Renault group this week, there's a, a good chunk of your lesson will be on Romans chapter 8 here and kind of looking deeper into this. So if you're curious, it's posted online. You can do it on your own. Uh, but there's some really good questions there that were borrowed. <laughs> Not that I wrote. Not <laughs> I borrowed them from N.T. Wright. Um, it would be good to study on that. God is working with us because the Spirit as is at work in us. There are some things that can have no answer except to love. And I love that. The presence of the Spirit with us. Dr. Edgardo Colon the mystery of evil is not a puzzle to be solved, but a corruption to be lamented. It should not be and will not be. The answer to the question of evil is the cross where evil is unmasked and conquered. 
when N.T. Wright was asked to write an article about what the Christian response to the pandemic should be, what is the Christian response? He instead said, there is no Christian response except to lament. I thought he sidestepped that trap pretty well of how our faith was politicized and manipulated in response to the pandemic and how it ranged from anything of don't live in fear, don't wear a mask to everything across the, we lived it, we remember it. You're like, don't dredge all that up again. But I loved that he simply said the correct Christian response to the pandemic is lament. It is simply saying this is not the way that it is supposed to be. Similar words here. The mystery of evil is not a puzzle that we can try and decode and fit together and follow some line back to make everything make sense. It's corruption to be lamented. That a people of faith can say this is not the way it is supposed to be with the illness and the devastation and the war and the abuse. The answer then is found in the cross where evil is unmasked, conquered. So the last promise that we can hold on to with these questions of suffering is simply, God will triumph. God will triumph. We don't know why evil exists, but we do know that God triumphs over evil. We do not know how it will happen. We can't read all of the signs and decode it and talk about the, uh, the punishment of God, but we can rest in the hope and the assurance that in the end, God will triumph because of the love of Jesus Christ on the cross. Evil is always temporary, and we get a snapshot, we get a glimpse into this in Revelation. And he talks about Jesus returning and how he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There will be a day when the suffering we experience will end. It is all temporary. So we can hold on to these truths that God is present with us, that God is at work in the midst of our suffering and that God will triumph. The mystery of it is that we don't know how or when. What is the will of God? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Whoever believes in him and loves him, they shall not perish. Been invited to be sort of caught up in that. In this beautiful, mysterious way, working with us, the Holy Spirit being poured out among us to be agents of Christ, ambassadors of Christ in a very hurting world. It's a mystery. It's a gift. It's an honor. It's humbling. And yet, for whatever reason, this is the way that God has chosen to save the world. So we can take heart in some of these promises. I take heart knowing that we are a part of a church community who at least gets part of this, maybe wrapping, wrapping our arms around it just a little bit if we know that God is with us, that God is at work in the midst of our struggle, and that God ultimately will triumph. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for who you are.
that you are a good and loving and benevolent God, full of mercy and abounding in steadfast love. God, we thank you that you make room for our big questions and doubts. So God, forgive us for the ways that maybe we've been so certain that we understand that we've missed experiencing part of you. Forgive us if we've ever been so certain about you and, and why certain things are happening that we've actually caused harm to our neighbor. Forgive us, we pray, and, and teach us again to be humble, to listen, to hear the cries of the needy, to lament with our neighbors who say, I am suffering and it doesn't have to be this way. Would you give us the courage that we need to sit in, in those painful moments, to not explain them away, to not run off, but to sit in it? Because God, we know that in some of those deepest moments of suffering, you show up among us too. And if we explain it away and if we run off, we might miss you. But God, thank you for these promises that we can hold on to. Would you be with us as we continue to discern how to live out our call to follow you and to be a part of your plan, your great plan of salvation for all. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ.